A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Arva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the impact of the Met Police investigating Downing Street... And you ask us, is Keir Starmer doing as well as David Cameron was at this point in his leadership? So after many agonising conversations with our producers about when we should record this episode and whether we should wait uh, for the big news, it looks like uh, the Sue Gray report might not be coming out as imminently as we originally thought. Um, the latest development that we haven't spoken about on the on the podcast yet since the last episode is the Metropolitan Police confirming that they are launching an investigation into the goings-on at Downing Street. As a result, firstly, of the information provided by the Cabinet Office inquiry team, and secondly, my officer's own assessment, I can confirm that the Met is now investigating a number of events that took place at Downing Street and Whitehall in the last two years in relation to potential breaches of COVID-19 regulations. That has erupted in a number of questions about what it means for the timeline and also what they release from from Sue Gray's report. So, you know, there were a lot of takes <laughs> when Cressida Dick, the, the commissioner, was up uh, in front of the London Assembly and, and announced this news. Some people who, you know, Boris Johnson's opponents Someone actually messaged me asking, you know, isn't this just a good thing for him because it's sort of like a stay of execution. But I personally can't see how all the headlines saying the police are investigating the sitting prime minister can possibly be a good thing. Um, But not only that, um, when I was talking to the Metropolitan Police and asking them why they weren't investigating it, one of the things that came up was that they were, you know, waiting for potential evidence of criminal activity that they thought that they should investigate. And so it appears that bar's been met, which certainly isn't a good thing for Boris Johnson in my eyes. And as well Mm -hmm. as that, I am hearing that it is sort of perversely quite a good thing for the Labour Party the longer that Boris Johnson staggers on because of the damage he's doing to the reputation of his party and his MPs as well. I mean, those sort of agonising media rounds of of ministers are just becoming so repetitive and 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 sort of soul destroying as as the weeks go on. Have you never been ambushed by a kick? <laughs> we can all relate. <laughs> when one flag comes by. <laughs> 
Um, so I just wonder what 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 you two think about the fact that this report still hasn't come out and what it means for for Boris Johnson's future. Shortly before I um, I ride off into downtown, it's time for me to go. Yeah, kind of do my proper like tinfoil hat act, which is I just think that the people who think that it is a good thing are showing a incredible level of naivety about what the cabinet office as a whole job is, what Sue Gray's actual job is. When the government, when a government wants a cabinet office inquiry into itself, the brief of the cabinet office is to make the issue mm. go away. If the cabinet office investigation finds that it cannot do that, right? Like, if at the end of their thing they're like, not only can we not do this, but we actually think there are things which need to be sent to the police, that is not good for the government. Government, like, you know, I think real talk. I think one of the things that some of the people saying this, you know, are, are kind of showing is that the kind of polite silence where people don't feel able to go, look, come on, that journalist is just like a wholly owned subsidiary of this number 10, means that people are like, oh, maybe there's something in this idea <laughs> than the, than, than it can, it will just be a big nothing burger. Like the bit of the government whose job it is to make government problems go away has looked at this and gone, actually, we can't help you here. We're giving this to the cops. That just means that like whatever version of this report that makes it uh, into, yeah, into public consumption cannot possibly be good and also i mean like uh, yeah yeah, i've been i've been speaking to lots of mps in fairly marginal seats to kind of find out where where their mood is at and unsurprisingly the answer is it's not good um and one of them was they were showing me this this meme which actually i I, i've seen uh by my father-in-law you know it's like a a boris picture of boris johnson face app to look like a woman and it's like you know you know hi i'm sue gray you know i'm here to do the Prime Minister's parties. My mum sent me that. <laughs> that was also in the whole family WhatsApp group. <laughs> Should we just let our parents do this podcast? <laughs> yeah, I just think clearly they would. They, they, yeah, but look, but they were just like you know this, this, this meme. Like they said, it's everywhere on like on yeah, you know, like all of my local Facebook groups. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. like it's clearly just like you know sort of doing the rounds through WhatsApp. They said actually the worst thing that could happen in terms of the next stage of this story would be for Sue Gray's report to go, actually, it was fine, or, like, mm-hmm. there was a cultural problem, or some other thing that would obviously fail to pass the smell test. And, you know, in, in many ways, yeah, I think not only is it bad because it suggests that the report will not be good, but also because, in some ways, the nightmare scenario for the Conservative Party, I think, is one in which you have a report by the Cabinet Office, you know, which is inconclusive. Again, I don't see how that can be reconciled with what the cabinet office has already done in terms of calling the police or but you know you have one which is either neutered because you know they want to prejudice the inquiry then you have the police going actually we don't have sufficient evidence to take to trial which you know as anyone who's been the victim of crime in recent years knows happens quite a lot um that would also be a catastrophe right like they it's, it's kind of weird the, the way that people in and around downing street's orbit have kind of sort of convinced themselves and they're like, oh, so they hated us rewriting the rules over Owen Patterson and they hate the parties. But what the voters will really love is it looking like we've rewritten the rules to get out of getting out of trouble over the parties. I just think this is just obviously a catastrophe. And and sometimes like one of the problems we have in our industry is like is just like feeling embarrassed to say the basic take because it we've because we feel like we're not adding value. But I just think the basic take is right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I suppose part of it, though, is that we're we're kind of talking about two distinct things that, as though they're one thing and they kind of overlap, but they are probably slightly different. So, like probably the first one is 
how objectively bad this story is for Boris Johnson and for the Conservatives and just for democracy in general. You know, if this is sort of high level criminal activity or if it's sort of seen as something less damaging. And then the second overlapping thing is sort of whether Boris Johnson is able to survive. And um and I think I suppose the second one is is the one that in practice we end up talking about a bit more and that's slightly less clear cut. So because on the first metric, like obviously once the police are involved and you know the information that they are given meets the threshold for a criminal investigation, like clearly there's the, there's no way of spinning it which doesn't make that worse in terms of how damaging this story is. But in terms of the Save Boris Johnson game plan, I think that is really interesting and a bit less straightforward because it really is extraordinary that he has been able to hang on this long. Just you know, that, that first statement when you know the, the Conservative benches behind him at Prime Minister's Questions were just eerily silent. None of them really wanted to be associated with him. And his apology was just excruciating. It, you know, he he just about like clung on through that. And what he was saying was was just, you know, all I ask is that you wait for the Sue Gray report. We've had another two prime minister's questions since then, and it has essentially got better for him every time, even though the external circumstances have kind of got worse because the police are now involved. In terms of how vocal his backbenches are and how much support he receives from them, he seems to be on a slightly safer footing with a lot of them than he was. And, um, you know, someone said to me the other day, um, someone who worked for Tony Blair was sort of saying that, you know, the future is a, is a great resource for politicians. And, mm. um, you know, kind of a little bit what we were saying in previous weeks, but the more I speak to people, the more like lots and lots of people do think that, he, he could well manage to hang on um, because no one so far has been willing to resign from the cabinet um, or challenge him for the, for the leadership and get the ball rolling. And it seems like more and more people think that maybe he will stay for another six months or another year. Maybe he could even um, go on to fight the next election. It doesn't mean that there aren't lots of Conservative MPs who are still very angry. And lots who, as far as I can tell, still plan on submitting letters whenever the Sue Gray report happens, pretty much whatever it says, because we already have some idea of, you know, what sort of ballpark it will be in. But, you know, it doesn't it doesn't mean that that's not the case, but it just seems like there are still plenty of MPs willing to give him a chance because there isn't just this one moment of intense anger. It seems like maybe Boris Johnson has has ridden through the worst of it. It doesn't mean there isn't a lot more bad stuff to come. Surely the lowest moment for him was that point when his when his backbenchers just did not seem behind him in that first Prime Minister's questions. And he's through the through the worst of that now. Well it's really interesting how it really truly is in the hands of Tory MPs, isn't it? Because even if it's found that he broke the law personally um, and the ministerial code you know says that he ought to resign who who is in charge of the ministerial code or at least enforcing its um its its prescriptions the prime minister so you know if he decides that he shouldn't have to go then he decides he shouldn't have to go and it really is up to the sort of guts of tory mp's to 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 get rid of him so it's interesting to know that there's a sense that that he might cling on among them 
Stephen, is that what you're hearing as well? Yeah, I think, I guess the question is, what, what do we mean by cling on, right? Because I think we can safely say that like the exciting moment, for me at least, when it looked like I would have had more prime ministers as political columnist over four years than Alan Watkins had over nine, just because that would have been pretty funny, right? Like as a kind of sign of political instability. That has clearly, that there is basically, unless Sue Gray's report like actually includes like a picture of <laughs> Boris Johnson drinking a tequila shot out of the belly button of a span, <laughs> he is not going to have to go in that time frame. But it's what we mean, but like there, there does come a kind of like, yeah, I was one Tory MP said that they were like, well, survivors what? And this is someone who doesn't actually plan to submit a letter yet. <laughs> not because they're not angry, but because like they have question marks about all of the available candidates. Uh, I do think that is another of the unwritten stories that like, Truss actually has quite a, a narrow base of support in the parliamentary party at the moment. Rishi Sunak has a broad but shallow sort of base. Yeah, like loads of people are like, oh, I like the look of him. Oh, he's very nice. He's, you know, he'd do better in my seat, et cetera, et cetera. But there are very few people who were kind of, you know, I will crawl over broken glass to make Rishi Sunak prime minister. And lots of those people are going like, I don't, I feel like he's handled this crisis badly. Maybe I want a longer look at him. But in terms of like, this government surviving and being able to, you know, do any of the thing, any of the tasks it has set itself. Mm. I just don't see it. And also, I think the thing we shouldn't forget, right, is that the big immediate crisis than than kind of might than the government faces externally is a thing which broadly unites almost everyone in Westminster, which is the um, the kind of ongoing sort of question over what's going to happen um, in Ukraine and. Yeah, there is no constituency in the Tory party other really than perhaps John Barron. And actually, I suspect even not John Barron is sufficiently dovish to, to, to be, you know, to be against the actions and interventions that the government uh, is taking at the moment. Not really contested by any of the opposition parties either. But then you get onto the energy price stuff, right, um, which, you know, inevitably collides against the energy price cap, what happens when it lifts, what happens mm-hmm. if you entirely you know the government's net zero strategy which I, you know the people are going look i accept and climate change is real but isn't it also expensive um <laughs> like those people are getting more and more emboldened and the interesting thing is even in that really terrible pmqs that was actually the thing he wouldn't retreat on yeah he, he wouldn't do the maybe we should end the fracking moratorium he was still doing no look we should be doing nuclear power and i think one of the interesting opportunities but also something i think that a large chunk of the Labour party is not particularly comfortable doing with this prime minister is that there's a bunch of stuff which he whether whether one thinks he is sincere or not he is closer to the median labor mp than he is to the median conservative mp and i just don't see how that is not going to be a political problem too far for him. Um, now, I, I, yeah, so so I, I guess I kind of feel like in some ways it's a bit like going, did Theresa May survive the 2017 general election? <laughs> I mean, in a sense, but in another more real sense, no. It is extraordinary, though, because I think that, that's so right. Um, but just looking at the, the way things were a few weeks ago, even that is quite an extraordinary survival. Not, not I don't mean in Theresa May's case, but I mean in, in Boris Johnson's case. The, there was so much public anger. The polls were so bad for the Conservatives. Conser- like Tory MPs were so angry. And 
yet he is still here. He'll probably be still here next week. And yes, even though the power has kind of drained away from him, when people talk about him being a kind of Houdini, I think they are kind of right. You know, um, we've sort of watched it in real time, it going from completely untenable that, you know, there were days a few weeks ago when, you know, it wasn't certain if, if he would have had to resign by the end of the day. And now we're in a position where he almost certainly is okay for now. Yeah, and I wonder if the May elections could sort of change that. Because I suppose, you know, if you're if you're a Tory MP and you know how much they love to talk about how, you know, how common sense sort of prevails and, and how they know, you know, when to act to get rid of a failing leader and and they they're not like the Labour Party. Perhaps that common sense kicks in after the results of the local elections. If they get terrible results in those elections to say, look, you know, we need a fresh leader who will win us back those council seats and, and you know, win us better electoral outcomes in, in future elections. Perhaps they can use the results of that to move if, as it seems is the case, they, they seem to have decided that they're not going to move yet. And with the results of Sue Gray's inquiry and the Metropolitan Police's investigation, if that doesn't do it, perhaps the May elections mm. will. As the philosopher Mike Tyson said, right? <laughs> Everybody has a plan until like they lose the London borough of Hillingdon in the council elections. <laughs> or words to that effect, anyway. Famous, um, that famous <laughs> quote. Um, I, I think this is the other thing, is that I've had lots of conversations with Conservative MPs where they've kind of gone like, oh, maybe it's dying down. Now, of course, one important political variable with this set of local elections is that there are some exceptions, but quite a lot of... Um, so there is a WhatsApp group in which which includes conservative group leaders. So that's, you know, whether they are the leader of, you know, the two remaining conservative councillors in Tower Hamlets or, you know, the hmm. yeah, the the narrow majority they have in Wandsworth, the huge huge majority they'll they have, you know, in a county council somewhere in West Norfolk. Now, the the pressure that some Conservative MPs are coming on is that they have elections in their patch and their councillors are saying, I'm sorry, excuse me. <laughs> your, your plan is for me to lose my seat but for the most part a lot of the councillors who are up this year are ones where they don't have a yeah where the, the councils are councillors are the top of the party already there isn't an MP in the local party for them to go mate what are you doing fix this problem um, and so it's it's easier to put it off until afterwards mm. but yeah so in this WhatsApp group I think mostly actually one of the things which is causing frustration is lots of people going like Yes, Secretary of State, this is great. But then they're privately like messaging each other going, half my group wants to quit, we're going to get wiped out, it's going to be really terrible. And I think what began the Boris Johnson era was, you know, those awful local and European elections the Conservatives had. And a bunch of Conservative MPs who were like, you know, I would rather sacrifice my firstborn child than have Boris Johnson be Prime Minister. You know, they were like, oh my God, we we've come fifth in a national election. Well, time to sacrifice the firstborn child, I guess. <laughs> and, and so I think you're right. Then I just find it so hard to imagine a situation in which if the local elections are as bad as the current polls would suggest they are, we shouldn't forget that these are two sets of local elections, you know, 2018 in which um, the two parties were level in the polls in the local elections and 2017, which were um, a very good set of elections in Scotland and Wales for the Conservative Party. So taken together, right, this is an election where where just 
just coming down from a high, a relative high point can produce some quite painful result. Now, of course, it's possible that, you know, yeah, they might go, oh, you know, well, we're still in control of Hillingdon or, you know, we've lost the popular vote in Westminster, but we still run it. Right. You can you can see like a bunch of narratives or they go, oh, well, most of the losses are in London, but they, they still have to do that again in 2023. And I am just dubious Given that, like, this story has, let's be frank, got a bit boring, right, I am dubious that the level we are seeing in the polls now is not the, like, new resting level. You know, just as, like, it took the vaccine rollout for the kind of post-Cummings resting level to unpick itself. And that kind of, that does mean the Tory party going through potentially at least one set of local elections. And that's, you know, before we have the tax rise, before the energy price cap does its thing. So, yeah, I'm just dubious than then MPs won't, when push comes to shove, go, oh, yeah, that, that's quite a painful election result. Let's not fight for the election with this guy. We have a very special offer for podcast listeners. If you would like to subscribe to The New Statesman, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Are yeah. Scott. So we've got an interesting question today. The 2008 financial crash was the catalyst for David Cameron's rise in popularity, brackets, I assume, and handed him a guiding political project, austerity. How can Keir Starmer replicate this, a guiding political project and polling rise, without a once in a generation event to define himself against? So this is sort of taking what's often said about Keir Starmer, that he's in kind of David Cameron in opposition polling territory. Uh, in the same stage of, of of his leadership, what do you two think? Um, I would, I suppose, tentatively say that there are already the beginnings of that. That I suppose, um, coronavirus was a once in a generation event, and the way that certainly Labour people seem to see it is that this is an opportunity for people to think about which government they want to bring in to help the country rebuild after the pandemic and um you know to look for example at the way the health service has been on its knees wasn't really able to withstand the shock of the pandemic to look at things like that and invest in them properly and fix them to quote unquote get the economy firing on all cylinders <laughs> I think we're going to be hearing a lot until the next election so in, in a similar way that David Cameron and George Osborne had their long-term economic plan 
to sort of fix things after the financial crash. I think that Labour thinks it can pitch itself as the party that can fix things and rebuild after the pandemic. Yeah, I also think the opportunity for Keir Starmer could also be quite similar to the opportunity for David Cameron, but with the answer being not austerity, but rebuilding, like you say. Because when we go into the next election, whenever it is, the economy is, well, first of all, we know voters from from polling that we've done, we know voters are associating the economy more with their jobs and prices in shops than they are with balancing the books, bringing down the debt and deficit, which was kind of David Cameron's whole shtick. So now that voters are feeling slightly different about it and having those feelings confirmed and probably fueled by, you know, prices rising, you know, energy bills going up, if that tax rise comes in, then they'll have even less money in their pockets. You know, if if that if that shift in mindset about what the economy means to people and what running the economy means to people changes, then well, that almost is a, a once in a generation thing. You know, yes, the pandemic is that is is the, is that kind of doomsday event, but it's the aftermath that could help Keir Starmer sort of have a Cameron style <laughs> Cameron style win in that sense. The, the really interesting thing is if you look at Cameron's approval ratings, which well, so actually, the thing is, is most leaders' approval ratings do actually follow have the same shape, right? Burst of interest when they're introduced, um, a kind of gradual sort of decline, and then a kind of midterm sort of lull, basically, because the opposition leader's pointless. And then they get a sort of additional sort of, oh, who's this fresh new space spike going into the general election campaign. And, you know, and, and, and thus, thus far, with the, with the important, and I think, you know, important for us to remember, uh, exception of... Uh, the immediate aftermath of his first reshuffle when there was a kind of, I think, quite easy to explain why there was a decline in Keir Starmer's approval ratings at that point. But he has broadly followed that trend. You know, so mm-hmm. positive thing for him, of him, he started in, in the sort of, you know, the, the Cameron's own where it's just like, okay, yeah, you're popular enough and this could happen. But actually the financial crisis, without wanting to get into an overly um, involved conversation about when the financial crisis started, right, but actually, whether you want to date it from the bank run on Northern Rock or Lehman Brothers doing its, oh, I'm sorry, I don't feel so good um, routine, neither of those events are the thing which caused David Cameron's his approval ratings to, to go back from their sort of midterm lull. What they did do, crucially, of course, is they shifted the direction of the Cameron Conservatives from we will do loads of tax cuts, but we will broadly keep the existing new Labour state to um, we will do loads of tax cuts. And I'm afraid that means a large chunk of the new Labour state will have to go. Um, So it was quite important in terms of increasing the radicalism of uh, the Cameron government. I think in some ways the the interesting difference with the the Starmer project, right, is that they have a, a bunch of sort of stuff about the labour market, a bunch of stuff about procurement, and then they're very ambitious, um, you know, green spending. Well, obviously, that's slightly different because I think that's partly the new deal. Well, obviously, they also believe it. But you, you, you do also just have to have a serious green spending commitment um, if you want to get elected in the 2020s. So that, that's kind of, you know, that kind of doesn't count because that's basically a like, are you a party than serious? If so, you have a climate commitment in, in a UK context. Um but the thing which is kind of interesting is at the moment, um, I think it's kind of been neglected, including by people and organisations who actually, if they looked at the detail, would really oppose what is on the table from Labour on 
on sort of uh, labour markets for a couple of reasons. One, because the Conservatives' Brexit strategy puts them in such a bad position with business anyway that the kind of person who would have been writing op-eds about, you know, that dangerous Mr Miliband is <laughs> a lot more angry about their access to the single market and customs union than they are about... Um, some quite big changes to the labour market. The second is, is that the Conservative Party has not yet, you know, then their attack on Keir Starmer continues to be quite eccentric. Like, okay, yes, it clearly annoys Keir Starmer when people refer to him as Sir Keir Starmer. But broadly, I think the idea that like the median voter in a country which elected Tony Blair, David Cameron, and Boris Johnson is like a knighthood for the Prime Minister? Well, I no, 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 that's too posh for my blood. I just don't buy it as a... But you can easily see how, as there are more pressures on people's cost of living, as, you know, there's kind of line that, you know, Rachel Reeves, of course, wants to move on, which is, you know, that we have high taxes because they have a low-growth economy. Then the, the labour market stuff goes from being a kind of thing that, like, it's like, guys, have you noticed they have this, to something which I can easily imagine becoming a central topic of political debate, which would could both be good for labour but also be bad Labour because it's not certain that if you have a debate about your ideas, then then that necessarily redounds to your credit. I actually think the really important thing they are not doing that David Cameron did very well is they have not yet, and I worry that podcast recording time will mean then I'll say this and I'll have done something and I'll look very silly. But they have shown, I think, no real signs yet of of being a, of moving their attack from the present prime minister to the likely next prime minister. They aren't really getting any joy out of, okay, well, is the net zero target going to be up for grabs if Boris Johnson goes? Which, I mean, it clearly would be. Yeah, like, they haven't really got much joy out of going, so these parties are not happening all the time. Um, what's the name of that guy, Ishii Unak? Wasn't he next door? Whereas the, one of the many very skillful things Cameron did in opposition was, was basically he didn't really ever oppose Tony Blair because he knew he didn't need to. There was no prospect when Tony Blair was going to fight the 2010 or 2009 or whenever, yeah, whenever election, there was no prospect when Tony Blair was going to lead them into it. So everything, yeah, was about attacking Gordon Brown. And I think that actually, rather than the absence of a project, is the thing that they are really missing a trick on at the moment, is they aren't really using Boris Johnson's discomfort and really using the ways that, yeah, and again, like we can talk about whether or not he believes, believes this stuff. But it does remain true that the agenda of Boris Johnson is closer to that of the Labour Party than David Cameron's was and closer to that of the Labour Party than any of his plausible successors would be. And I think they probably should be trying to get more joy out of that gap between the Prime Minister and his, his, uh, his backbenchers. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business. Removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.